0: How you doing? Awesome. I'm Tim. Howdy. I do this. So if you don't know what this is, I'm, I'm about to preach a sermon. I've threatened to multiple people to have it be really long this morning because there were a couple people that that thought that the service was going to be shorter today, mixing up when we did Serve Sunday. So I said, if you think I'm going to do a short sermon, I'm going to do an even longer one now. And i I'm just kidding. It's going to be a completely average length of sermon this morning. I don't. I don't even know what that is. Anyway, we're continuing our series called Real Talk as we uh, dive into the Psalms. And um, I once heard someone say that Scripture often has the power to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And as we dive into the psalms. If you remember last week, and if you weren't here, I'll just tell you, as we look into the psalms, we'll notice that there are are three categories of psalms. There are psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and then psalms of new orientation. And we're going to be looking at a psalm of orientation today. And the orientation, disorientation, and new orientation uh, all have to do with the, the perspective of the psalmist. Um. Their, uh, their, their perspective being that life around them and within them feels uh, either uh, oriented, uh, they, they know where they're going, they know how to put one foot before the other. Uh, if they're in a disoriented state, it means that life isn't exactly going the way that they thought it should or the way that it had planned in spite what they happen to believe about God and uh, his work in their lives. And then new orientation tends to come about when a person uh, discovers some, uh, some new facet of life that helps to uh, reorient uh, their, their view of, of their walk. And the reason I told you about the Scripture being something that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable is because oftentimes when we come to Scripture... We tend to read it to try to find things that already affirm something that we already think or believe to be right. And I think, no, I don't think, I believe, that oftentimes when we read Scripture in its fullness, we will find that there are moments that Scripture agrees with a preconceived idea that we hold or perspective, but there are also times that we will look to Scripture and it will mess with us a bit. It'll disorient us. It will knock us off of our pedestal and help reorient us to the way God wants us to go. And I can think of no other scenario than when we come to a passage that challenges us, that makes us a bit uncomfortable, that makes us have to deal with a struggle so, you know, confession time. I'm going to tell you the passage of scripture. No, in fact, I'm going to read you the passage of scripture that I struggle the most with. Then, then you can all like, you know, pick on me for later, if you want. You don't have to. It Depends if you're in an honorary mood. It's in Matthew chapter six. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's verses 25 through 34. It reads as follows. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will I eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who seek all of these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. That passage is the hardest passage in Scripture for me personally to stomach. If you've heard me talk before, you'll know that I got diagnosed in 2018 with generalized anxiety disorder. Woo! My doctor had me take a test and I got all the answers right. It was awesome. Um, Great day. Great day. Um, I went in. I had some physical symptoms from my anxiety because I'd been in a bad period of time and and I I was worried that I was that I had some sort of nefarious illness actually I rattled off two of them to my doctor and my my doctor turned to me and said well I've got bad news you've got both of them and then she laughed and then she said here you can take a test and and there we go worry for me is a struggle I tend to be a worrier not a warrior, a worrier. I tend to be a worrier. I tend to uh, I, I tend to worry about things that I can control, and I tend to worry about things that I don't have control over. And I should let that go, but I struggle to do that. And so when I read this passage, and by the way, when Jesus says there, "Do not worry," uh, if you want to get a uh, grammar geeky for a moment, it is in the imperative. It means it's a command. Jesus is commanding his listeners, do not worry. And if Jesus were standing here, right here, right now, and said, Tim, do not worry, I'd be like, hey, I have trouble with that. <laughs> and Jesus had a tendency to do these things to people. It's almost like, like he knew people really, really well, and he could challenge them and, and knock them off their mark by telling them to do or to stop doing this one thing that they just couldn't get past. So you might be wondering, well, why are you talking about disorientation? Because isn't this the week that we're supposed to be talking about the psalm of orientation? And I say, yes, that is what we're talking about. We're going to look at Psalm 11 today. But here's the deal. Psalms of orientation, as we will see, are all about a person being rooted in confidence in God. But the problem is, is that when you deal with worry like I do, uh, you can put your confidence in the wrong things, the wrong people, and sometimes even in yourself. And, you know, I know everyone says you should have self-confidence, and on some levels that's a good thing. But when your confidence is only in yourself and what you can do and what you can control, it becomes problematic when you live in a world where you realize you can't control everything. And that's what I've had to come to grips with. I don't consider myself a control freak. My wife might disagree, actually, I don't know. But I don't like when there's a situation where I don't always have control of the circumstances, the outcomes. And so I tend to worry. Like if my kid has like, A limp or something like that. My brain doesn't go to, well, he bumped his knee two days ago. It it goes to worse places, which is not good because I don't want my kid to be a worrier either. So this is the kind of thing that I do. So I'm I'm not joking. I'm not just giving you like a a fake, well, this is the the hardest passage. No, this, I struggle with what Jesus had to say here. The problem with my struggle is, is that when it comes to Psalm 11 and much of what's in the Bible— It hits me directly in the gut and directly in the heart. We're going to look at a psalm of David. In this psalm of David, we don't exactly know the precise context that David is in, but when you read the psalm, you can determine a couple of things. Uh, he's likely gone to the temple, to a place of refuge. That's a word that's going to come up here. And he's done this because his enemies are likely surrounding him or on his heels. And you know, if you've ever been in a predicament in life, and you're trying to figure your way around it, wiggle your way out of it, you start to think through, where can I go? Who can I depend on? How can I make the situation better? And that's what David is dealing with in this psalm here. And so I want you to follow along with me in Psalm eleven. It's just seven verses. And we're gonna look at this and and deal with it. But again, it's a psalm of orientation, so it's a good psalm. Okay. It says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains? For look, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow. To the string, to shoot in the dark at the upright and heart, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His gaze examines humankind. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and his soul hates the lover of violence. On the wicked he will rain coals of fire and sulfur. A scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now if you remember last week when we looked at Psalm 1, we pointed out that that psalm is a wisdom psalm. And it's meant to basically set the template about how we should view our life in relation to God. It sets up what matters to God and what happens if we align ourselves on the trajectory that God wants us to be on and what happens if we choose not to. But as we also pointed out, the problem with wisdom literature in general is, is that we can look at life in this black and white way and say to ourselves, somewhat erroneously, that that's the way that it is without remembering that we live in a sinful fallen world and things don't always go the way we plan. They don't always go the way we want and people don't always do the things that we want them to do to make our lives nice, peachy, and easy going. And so we end up in a bit of a conundrum. How do we live in this chaotic state? But as we pointed out, the psalm isn't meant to say that in every moment, things will always be the way that you want. Remember, it says in Psalm 1 that our life, we are like a tree planted uh, near water. And despite the change in seasons, seasons, the ebbs and flows of life, God gives us sustenance that we need. And so this idea of God being in favor of the righteous and going against the deeds of the wicked still stands. But now we've got David face-to-face with the turmoil and chaos that life can bring. The enemy is at his doorstep. And do you know where he goes? He goes to the temple. Now see, in in our English translation here, it, it, it says that, in the Lord I take refuge, but the the idea behind this is that he has gone to the place of refuge where the Lord is, and later on in the passage, the first place that he says that the Lord is, is in where? The temple. Of course, he goes on and expands because God isn't kept in a box. (laughs) He is high above, he is all around, and he sees all. But for David, the temple was his place of refuge to go to be with God. He directed his life to go to God. Despite, as he says, people around him may tell him to do otherwise. Because as he constructs this psalm, He says, how can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains? For look, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Do you hear the the chaos and turmoil there? The idea of the the wicked shooting their arrow in the dark. Almost like they're just creating chaos. It doesn't matter where it lands. It doesn't matter who it pierces. It's coming after the righteous. This is the, the frailty of the circumstances that David is facing. And yet where others would tell him to go flee, to go run and hide, he not only goes to the Lord, his refuge, but he goes to a place that his enemies probably can guess he might be and easily find him. But he goes to God anyway. And why does he go to God? Because he reminds us in this psalm, he reminds us that the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. That the ways of the wicked will end in ruin, but the upright shall behold his face. Despite the circumstances, despite the season that David is in, he hasn't lost the plot as it relates to God. He has realized that God will stand firm on what he promises. That if he invites you to follow him and says that you will receive the blessing of life devoted to and with God for your devotion, that is what you will end up with. And if you choose to deviate and go the path of the wicked, you will end up with the destruction that they are journeying toward. And David holds this truth intact in his heart, and his mind. And he says, when they are nipping at my heels, I will go to God. I'm not running for the hills. I'm going to the one in whom my confidence is in. That is why this is a psalm of orientation. Because even though life has become difficult... David doesn't lose the plot. His whole being is oriented toward God. He knows that life ought to be oriented toward God. He knows that God will ultimately determine the outcome if he remains faithful to him. And so he's not going to go run and flee as his hearers or those knowing his circumstances might tell him, but he's going to go find his refuge in the Lord. And so when we think about psalms of orientation, like Psalm 11, we can also think about it as a psalm of confidence. But it's not a psalm of confidence in your own might, your own will. It's not a psalm of confidence in your own wealth. It's not a psalm of confidence in your army. It's not a psalm of confidence in anything else other than God because when we place our confidence in God we will keep ourselves oriented to the track that God wants us on even when the seasons ebb and flow and we experience both the highs and lows of life and in this case, David is experiencing some sort of low because nobody really wants to be tracked down by their enemies I don't think, I don't think that's fun I don't, I don't, David doesn't think it's fun But the issue is, is that if we are people that have a tendency to put our confidence in other things, it is hard to have our life's orientation going in the right direction. Because we will settle for lesser things in which to put our hope, to put our need, to put our devotion. And so psalms of orientation sound really nice, right? Until you actually consider what it's calling us to do. Because if you're anything like me, and this is an area of struggle for you, this is not always the easiest psalm to stomach. News flashes you'll find next week, I actually relate better to psalms of disorientation. (laughs) Because that's why we're calling this series Real Talk, because David and the other psalmists get very real when they become disoriented in their perspective of life. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't put a fake smile on. They don't put on religious language. They're honest with God and say, hey, things are looking bleak. I'm not feeling too great right now. You gonna do anything? (laughs) But here in this moment, David's life is oriented in the right direction because he has confidence in God. And that leads me to another story in the Gospel of of Matthew. Because if you're like me and and you're facing this sort of thing and and you're thinking, oh, I'm done for. I want to give you some encouragement in somebody else's failure. Because, you know, misery loves company. My favorite apostle, the best one, Peter, is really good at failing. And no, he I mean, he doesn't always fail forward. I know that's like a thing people say. Like he's just good at failing. He's good at opening his mouth and having the bravado of faith. And then when the moment to action comes, uh, he messes up. And there's this little story. It's, it's not a little story. It's a quite popular one. Of Jesus walking on water and Peter's response. And I want to read it to you for a moment. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. <clears throat> and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! Sorry, I just, I imagine getting frightened too. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's the voice that I imagine him saying that in. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when Peter noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out, to, uh, reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Uh, now, this story is interesting because uh, I'm pretty sure a book got written that was titled somewhere in the ballpark of, like, if you want to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Did someone write a book called that at some point? It was meant to turn this story into a story of Peter's faith, because he got out of the boat and started walking. And and I'm sorry if you like that book, but I'm going to ruin it for you, because that's not what this is about at all. (laughs) This is actually a story about a Savior in whose confidence we should put our whole life in. And yet, what happens to Peter when he starts to take a stroll on the waves? Well, it says specifically that Peter's attention gets turned from Jesus to the stormy weather. No, He was not looking at Doppler radar on his phone. He was out in the thick of it. And he couldn't stop looking at the crashing waves and the storminess around him. And the moment that he took his attention off of Jesus and onto the thing in which he was afraid, you know what he did? He started to sink. And it's funny because... That thing Jesus said that I don't like reading about not worrying. You know He he says you have little faith there. Do you know he says that to Peter too? You have little faith. And yet, when they get in the boat, his disciples are amazed because of his power. Can you imagine being afraid of the 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 lesser power of the storm when you've got a greater power right in front of you to put your confidence in? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being so not confident in God that you put your confidence and let your frailty cower because of lesser things? Can you imagine that? Oh, wait. Darn it. I can. I do it all the time. Here's the funny thing. One time, uh, My wife and I, we were at a wedding and we were in the car with some friends and we were turning left onto a road. There was no light. It was out out open road. I think the speed limit had to be 55 or 60. And my car stalled. I mean, it it didn't just stall, it just shut off. And there were cars coming really fast at us. And I calmly just turned the key off and I turned the key over And I just hit the gas and I went along. Didn't even break a sweat. You know the funny thing about that is, for some weird reason, I could sit and fret for 24 hours in the comfort of my living room about a scenario where I get smashed by a car that I'm turning left out of parking lot. But then the moment comes and it's just like, well, I've either got to get my car started or we're going to get hit. That doesn't make any sense to me. But I realize that the problem is is that I am far too confident in the things that I can control and in whether or not the people around me can hold me up, whether or not I can do it myself, and I'm far few in opportunity where I am confident in God. Yes, that's right. Your preacher is admitting that he struggles with the things Jesus tells you not to do. I'm human, and I bet you are too. So what do we do with this? Well, I try to think of an earthly example of this. So I've told you before, I dealt with some bullying when I was a kid. So uh, one of the guys that used to bully me, um, when I was in uh, seventh grade English class, he was picking on me too. But I developed a friendship with a, a buddy that became my best friend that was a third degree black belt. And Adam, the, the, the black belt, who ended up being the best man in, in my wedding, and he played drums in the band I was in and all this stuff, we, we go way back. But Adam saw me getting picked on, and he told the guy to stop. Man, he didn't use fisticuffs. So the guy that was trying to bully me, he thought, well, you know what? I've got the black belt. I'm going to try to take him. So I tried to put Adam in a choke, choke hold. He broke out of it and backed the guy up into the wall, and the guy stopped messing with him. Unfortunately, they both got in trouble for that because, you know, it's always both people's fault or whatever anyway. That guy never messed with me again. And Adam and I, we ended up having to do a book report on a book called When the Tripods Came, Yes, I remember that little dumb detail. And we became friends, and I I realized that, like, I had someone that had my back, even when things were difficult. And they had been difficult up to that point because I was always a scrawny kid that got picked on. You know why I love Psalms of Orientation, Psalms of Confidence, despite the fact that I struggle with them? is because when I can get past myself for a moment and actually pray and consider God, I realize that we have a God that has our back if we choose to live a devoted life to him. And that's why David can sing this psalm of orientation to God that became a hymn for the people of God in his time and beyond It is why that when you read the story of David in 1 Samuel and up to a certain point in 2 Samuel, it's why David always consults God before making his next move because he is confident that God is with him, that God's plan will unfold even if it's uncomfortable at times. And it's the reason that even when I run into passages that unsettle me, that challenge me, that convict me, I'm willing to stick with it because I know God is bigger than my worries. He's bigger than the faulty things I put my confidence in. He's bigger than the trials that I face. And he's bigger than the sin that I need rescuing from. And that is why when David faces the trials he faces, he finds refuge in the Lord. I encourage you to join me in the struggle to find refuge in the Lord because there's no one greater that we can have confidence in. Each week we take communion as a church family And you know the thing that I love about taking communion is that we we realize just how good God is to us. You know, I was telling you the story about my friend Adam. There was the black belt that came and said, lay off my buddy or whatever. And the other thing I remember the most about that situation is Adam was a third degree black belt and he could have really whooped the guy. Very, very badly. (laughs) He broke free of the guy's attempted chokehold, but he didn't hurt him at all. Other than making sure that he got off of him completely. He didn't lay a hand on him. You know, the disciples, when they got excited about following Jesus as Messiah, they thought he was going to be the hero that was going to come in and wipe all their enemies out. Do you know what Jesus did instead? He submitted to the will of the Father and ended up on their enemy's torture device. And he died not only for his enemies, but for his friends who followed him, even though they followed him a bit erroneously, thinking he was a different kind of Messiah than he was. I love that when we take communion that we know that we can have confidence in God because we serve a God who is not only for the upright, but he makes a way for those of us who are not yet upright to become upright. And he does it by doing the upright thing. The great love shown by laying down his life for you and for me. That's what we remember when we take communion. So I'm going to give you a moment to pause and to reflect And after we take our time of reflection, we will take communion together as a church family, eating of the bread and drinking of the cup that remind us that Jesus gave of his body and had his blood poured out for us. given for us. And I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for yet another Sunday that we can come together as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, I thank you for the fact that when we reflect on your truth, your word, your scriptures, uh, that we are, are met with uh, points of comfort but also points of challenge. Where our, our pathways are, are maybe halted and redirected Uh, where our notions of how things are 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 upended and and rerouted and where we come face to face with the struggles that we have. and I thank you, God, that we are reminded that uh, in all of the ups and downs of life that you are there, that you are trustworthy and true and that we can put our confidence in you that you are creator, that you are the author of life, that you love us, that you made a way for us back to you, that even when we are in the pit of our own sin, that your desire is to pull us up out of it. And not only to pull us out of it and to rescue us, but to build us up, to do good in honor of you, and in the favor of those around us. So God, I just pray that as we contemplate not only this Psalm of David, but we maybe contemplate the ways that we may like what we hear, but struggle to accept it, to struggle to live it out. I pray God that by the power of your spirit that you will help us to live it out, that you will uh, help us to lean on one another uh, as a church family to live it out, And that uh, we will be made better and make the world around us better because of your power uh, within us. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.